Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We're on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And in this conversation, we have the privilege to welcome Phil Johnson to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Phil. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, it's a blessing to have this conversation with you. Uh, For our listeners that have already solved the title of the episode come in their podcast feed you already know what the subject is about it's going to be about charles finney uh we're going to talk about emotionalism and revivalism and before we begin our conversation i wanted to just mention while we're why we're talking about this subject on the covenant podcast Uh, one of the members of the church that i'm a member of covenant baptist church in clarksville tennessee mentioned that he wanted to know more about charles finney and emotionalism and revivalism and another one of our brothers uh in the congregation who is uh, a graduate of the master's seminary said well you should have uh phil johnson on to talk about that and he sent me uh brother phil's email and uh we graciously have the privilege to talk with phil about this subject so glad it worked out uh so welcome to the show brother and it is our custom uh to begin our conversations by asking our first time interviewees if they'll simply introduce themselves to our audience so can you do that for our listeners sure i'm phil johnson and uh most people know me from either my blog or or my online presence or the fact that i'm executive director of grace to you which is john MacArthur's media ministry and uh, for the past three or four years i've also been the the voice on the radio broadcast the host so I'll say, uh, I am your host, Bill Johnson, and then introduce John. Um, and so um, that's, that's what really takes up, uh, uh, let's say, that's, that's my employment. What, what I actually do that's most important is I'm a book editor. Um, my background is Christian publishing, and uh, I worked for several years at Moody Press. Uh, when they started editing, when they started publishing John MacArthur's material, I volunteered to edit it. And uh, we sort of got together, and he said to me one day, you should quit your job here and just come to work for me. And uh, I said, okay. And uh, within weeks, I was here in California, have been here now for 40 years in this job. Praise the Lord. I, I think we all know that uh, Dr. MacArthur can be quite persuasive. So uh, when, when he gives you an opportunity of that nature, we certainly uh, want to take that. Uh, True, although I didn't take any, I didn't need any persuasion. I actually had, first time I ever heard him speak, uh, my initial thought was, his material is so good and rich and biblical, and he's never published any books. I, I thought he needs somebody to help him get his sermons you know, into print, translated into you know, literary style language and put it in books, sort of like Martin Lloyd-Jones did. Um, and um, I, I, so I used to fantasize about that. And then the opportunity arose for me to do it. It didn't take any persuasion. No, that's awesome. And uh, Phil, just so you know, I'm actually a graduate of the Master's University and uh, I'm somebody who has followed your ministry for quite some time. So I'm really stoked to be able to talk with you today along with Austin. And um, I think this subject falls into your, if I could say it like this, polemical wheelhouse. I think you're going to really have a lot of great things to say to our listeners. And uh, as Austin alluded to, we're going to be talking about Charles Finney, who's likely a person of infamy to many of the the men and even women who listen to our podcast on a regular basis. So maybe as we transition into the bulk of our conversation today, 
Uh, would you be willing to provide us just with a general sketch of who Charles Finney was? Yes, Finney was an uh, evangelist. Actually, he was an attorney who was uh, professed conversion, conversion to Christ in a sudden sort of conversion. He was somebody who had been kind of a skeptic and hostile to uh, what the pastor of the church he attended taught, uh, which was the gospel, actually. And But Finney was fascinated with religion. He made a profession of conversion to Christ, began to teach, and um, became one of the best-known and um, most influential evangelists in the uh, early part of the 19th century, uh, mostly in New England, uh, although he, he also was the first president of Oberlin College. So his ministry reached as far west as Ohio. Um, and he had some quirky theological ideas that more or less upset the, uh, the, the entire you know, New England theology. New England theology was in flux at the time anyway. Uh, some of Jonathan Edwards' own offspring, uh, also with the Beecher family who were, I, I've argued the, the Beechers, uh, and especially Henry Ward Beecher, have have had more influence on American religion than anyone else, including Billy Graham. And it's been a far-reaching and not particularly healthy influence. And Finney came along in that same milieu, and he was uh, at first hostile to the to the Beechers. And in fact, I think I think there was a, a probably a, a spirit of dislike between the Beechers and Finney all along. And yet. They influenced one another in a way that was not good. And Finney left his stamp on American evangelicalism, which has never really recovered from the negatives of his influence. Uh, in short, he rejected the Puritan and Reformed theology of the early American settlers in, in Massachusetts, especially it was a Puritan colony. Um, by Finney's time, they had abandoned all of that. and embraced a kind of experiential religion that, in Finney's case, specifically uh, rejected all of the reformed doctrinal statements about the gospel. So again, his, his influence wasn't healthy. I first heard of Finney when I was originally converted in the 1970s, and I was fascinated with him at first. As a new convert, I read the, uh, the sort of edited version of his autobiography that had been published by Fleming Rebell Company, which takes out all of the stuff that really gives you insight into what a devious character Finney was, that it sort of whitewashes him. And then in the 1940s or 50s or thereabout, uh, the president of Wheaton College at the time was V. Raymond Edmund, published a book called Finney Lives On in which he celebrated Finney as the greatest revivalist in American history. And he said things in the book like, if, if we would just follow Finney's strategy and methods, this would guarantee revival in our time. He, he was instrumental in sort of uh, resurrecting Finney's reputation among evangelicals. And so I came into uh, the faith in the, in the uh, early 1970s in an influence environment that had been influenced like that. And so I read as much about Finney as I could. I, I, I liked what I heard about the guy. There were these stories that he would, he had this aura about him. So he would walk into a factory and just his mere presence would cause people to fall on their knees and repent. 
and you know, as a new Christian, I didn't know how to evaluate that, but I thought if such a gift uh, exists, I, I want to meet somebody with that ability. Or better yet, I'd love to have that ability myself. Uh, and I think a lot of people for decades read Finney with that kind of gullibility. I didn't hear a single negative evaluation of Finney until I think the early 1990s. So I'd been a Christian for almost 20 years before I really critically examined Finney. And about that time, uh, someone came out with a published edition of his autobiography that was unedited. It restored the text that the Revell Company had had taken out of it. And when you read that, it puts Finney in a whole different light. Uh, he obtained his credentials as a minister under false pretenses. He claimed he believed the Westminster Confession of Faith. The truth is, he, he not only didn't believe it, he rejected it emphatically and every major principle that it stands for, but he never actually read it for himself. And he says in his autobiography, it didn't occur to him that the ordination committee might ask him if he agreed with the Westminster Confession of Faith when they were preparing to ordain him. And so he lied, basically, and said he, he received it insofar as he understood for its basic doctrinal principles. And they didn't question him any further than that. The truth is, because he'd never read it, he didn't understand any of it. He was just saying what he had to do to get his ordination credentials. And he, he proceeded from there and admits in his autobiography that from, from the time he really understood what the Westminster Confession said, he campaigned against every major point that it makes. Uh, so when you read his unexpurgated autobiography, he comes across, again, as a, a, not only a devious man, but I think every major distinctive of his theology was unsound. He rejected original sin. He rejected the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Therefore, he didn't believe in justification by faith. He taught that it's up to the sinner to, to reform his own heart. Uh, just about everything in his theology undermines what I think every true evangelical would consider to be gospel truth. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a good place for us to transition us to. Uh, another question that we wanted to ask you, uh, most of our Calvinistic listeners usually associate Charles Finney with emotionalism and revivalism. But before we discuss these issues, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about some of the doctrinal convictions that would eventually lead him to those practices. And you just mentioned uh, the denial of original sin. So can you flush that out? What did Finney believe about original sin and total depravity and how someone becomes a follower of Jesus, according to his system? Right. I think it, a lot of it stemmed from his, as I said, he was an attorney. It stemmed from his legal approach to uh, uh, the concept of righteousness, justice that he carried in his head. Uh, and I think the starting point, the fundamental error of Finney was he rejected the imputation of, right, of sin or righteousness. He didn't, he didn't believe that Adam's guilt could be imputed to his offspring, and he didn't believe that Christ's righteousness could be imputed to believers. And therefore, he believed if you're going to be justified, it has to be on the ground of a righteousness that you produce yourself. So it's pure works religion. It's a, it's a retooling of Pelagianism, which was, the, of course, the, one of the ancient heresies that uh, surfaced. Pelagius was the, uh, was the opponent of Augustine. 
and they argued over the place of grace and the doctrine of original sin. And uh, Pelagius's argument was the same as Charles Finney, that it would be unjust uh, to condemn Adam's offspring because they inherited his, his not only his, the corruption of his sin, but the guilt of it. Uh, and so they, they argued against the idea that guilt could be imputed from one moral agent to another, which on the face of it might, might be a, a truism according to secular law today. But if you think about it, if, if one person's guilt can't be imputed to another, then there's no way Christ could pay for our sins. How could he take our guilt on his shoulders and pay for it? And, and that was exactly what Finney concluded. He denied uh, substitutionary atonement. He said whatever was happening on the Christ cross, that was, not, that was not Christ paying for the sins of believers because their guilt could not righteously be imputed to him. So every, every major deficiency in his theology stemmed from, I believe, his rejection of the principle of impute, imputed righteousness and imputed guilt. And, uh, and it undermined essentially every major truth of the gospel. Once you reject that idea, you're left with no option other than a works righteousness. If you're going to be right before God, you have to do it yourself. And that is exactly what Finney taught. He had a sermon called uh, Make for Yourselves New Hearts, in which he, he was quoting, of course, from an Old Testament verse where the Lord is, is more or less, uh, maybe the right word is sarcastically saying to sinners, make yourselves new hearts. Go ahead. See if you can change your hearts. Scripture's everywhere very clear that uh, the leopard can't change its spots and the, and the Ethiopian can't change his skin. And neither, therefore, can you who are, you know, inclined to sin by nature, you can't change your own heart. And, but then in another place, the Lord says to sinners kind of sarcastically, change your hearts. And then he seized on that statement, which was loaded with irony if you read it in context in Scripture. But he developed not only a sermon but an entire theology that essentially required sinners to reform their own hearts. Yeah, as we know, uh, great dangers can come about when we construct an entire system of theology around one verse uh, or, or one uh, passage of Scripture. And uh, it's pretty, at least for me, uh, mind-blowing to hear of Finney's theological errors that you've teased out. And I think it sets the stage nicely for uh, Finney's convictions about uh, emotionalism, revivalism, and how that even uh, can be traced back to him in our own day. Would you be willing to, at this point in our conversation, define what we mean by emotionalism and revivalism? And then, of course, how those particular uh, terms or concepts can be tied back to Finney's influence in the uh, 19th century? Right, and the two things are linked. Revivalism, as opposed to genuine revival, revival, we believe, is wrought by the Holy Spirit in accordance with his will and his sovereign timing and all that. Revivalism stems from the idea that you can create revival by an appeal to the human will and human emotions. And so it becomes very emotional, and, and emotionalism, the word, refers to the fact that uh, it's an attempt to manipulate the emotions of the hearers so that they respond in a certain way. Uh, and most American revivalism for centuries now has been 
just that, an attempt to appeal to people's emotions in order to get them to respond, to come forward, or in Finney's case, he had what he called the anxious, anxious bench, uh, which is a place at the, at the front of the auditorium where people who wanted to repent would come and, and sit there. And, you know, it was a humiliating kind of experience based on the idea that you can concoct your own repentance. He did not see repentance as a gift of God. You know, scripture says God has granted to the Gentiles repentance. Uh, re repentance is as much a gift of God as faith or any other virtue. Uh, it, it isn't something we work up on our own, but Finney would have denied that. And so he, he tried by all means to manipulate the emotions of his hearers so that they would respond and profess conversion. The irony is at the end of his life, he acknowledged that all his methodology, while it created a huge furor and uh, lots of activity that was called revival, it didn't have any lasting fruit. And so he shifted away ultimately from evangelism completely, uh, and particularly while he was president at Ober Oberlin College, devised, um, uh, a theology of perfectionism that um, focused on sanctification because he could see that these people who professed conversion in his revivals didn't continue in the faith. And in fact, they turned away. Once they turned away, it was impossible ever to win them to any kind of faith. And so the, the portion of upstate New York where he focused most of his energies was known as the burnt over district. You couldn't you couldn't drum up any kind of interest in religion there within years after Finney had gone through. So these these massive uh, emotionalistic revivals would sweep through there, but it would leave the place barren, barren of spiritual fruit, barren of any kind of lasting faith. And he saw that and acknowledged it and believed that the uh, the answer to that then is to do more to encourage people to pursue sanctification. Again, it was a very works-oriented kind of thing, and he, he devised a theology that's not not completely different from Charles West or John Wesley's uh, perfectionism. The idea that you could attain a state of sinless perfection where sin no longer held any appeal to you, and he taught that uh, in the final years of his life. He, so he shifted from evangelism to perfectionist sanctification. Wow. Uh, and hearing of this anxious bench, I'm sure most of our uh, Calvinistic listeners are perplexed at this practice, but it does at least make sense in the way that you've tied it to his doctrine, that his, his doctrine led to that practice. Yeah, and that, that whole concept sort of morphed into what, what you know, Baptists worldwide now practice in the invitation. Uh, I want to talk about that, that now. The anxious bench was I think purposely a humiliating situation. The idea was to put the person at the front of the auditorium while he repents. And, uh, you know, the, the humiliation of publicly uh, going through this attempt to drum up some kind of uh, repentance on your own, uh, that, was supposed to, that was supposed to be an impetus towards repentance. You felt the humiliation and, and whatever. Baptists sort of adapted that to get rid of the, the humiliating aspect of it. So every eye is closed and every head is bowed and no one's looking around. 
you just slip your hand up and you can do it almost secretly but ultimately you have to come forward and uh, and so there it, it's the same concept uh, and the idea becomes then that it's the act of coming forward uh that's that marks and and establishes your conversion uh, mm-hmm. i remember as a new christian uh i was saved just before I graduated from high school. So I was still a new Christian when I entered college the first semester. And uh, I had a roommate who was from a rural Baptist background. And he had, when I met him, I told him, you know, I'm a Christian. Where are you at spiritually? He said, oh, I just became a Christian. Uh, and what he described was uh, in the church he went to, uh, on the last Sunday he was there, before he went off to college, at his mother's behest, because she didn't want to send a pagan off to college, he went forward at the end of the service and uh, had the pastor pray with him. He believed that established his conversion. And uh, so I had to explain to him, even as a new Christian, I understood that the act of coming forward isn't, that, that is not what makes a Christian. It's your faith you know, do you actually have faith in Christ? Do you truly love Christ? Is there a desire for his word and and his lordship in your life? And, and he admitted that, no, really nothing, nothing in the way he thought or felt changed, but he, he figured the act of going forward is what made him a Christian. All of that is the legacy of Finney's influence. That's exactly what Finney conditioned people to to think, that in order to be converted, they had to go and sit on the on the anxious bench and then after that you know they were in but then when they discovered there really wasn't any change in their heart or their desires or their interests they would abandon the faith completely thinking it's all a sham and that's what that's what created the burnt over district Mm. that's that's really helpful i was going to ask you to draw some similarities between uh the anxious bench and finney and then the contemporary evangelical practice of walking forward uh, to it's the same thing, the only maybe uh, uh, sanitized a little bit. That's helpful. Dewey, you can go ahead since he helpfully answered my question. Absolutely. And just to piggyback off of what Phil was getting at, I remember when I first got saved, I used to just devour old Billy Graham uh, evangelistic crusades. And at the end of every sermon, seemingly, he would stress how when somebody came to faith in Christ, they had to go forward publicly. And when you go forward publicly, it just makes the experience all the more real. And um, it's it's very interesting to see the parallels between uh, Billy Graham's approach, even in his evangelistic crusades, to some of Finney's methodologies that he was implementing in his day. So really appreciate you giving us those overviews, Phil. Very helpful. And um, I, I know where some listeners may be inclined to go, especially if they're not Calvinistic in their understanding of soteriology. There may be some listening now who's hearing us speak about altar calls, anxious bench, um, revivalism, emotionalism. They're hearing some of these negative connotations associated with these these terms and these practices. And they may just think, well, those Calvinists, they just don't believe in evangelism. They, they don't take uh, the free offer of the gospel seriously, uh, whereas men like Finney, Billy Graham and others, they do. And I, I want to give you the chance, Phil. Uh, to speak on how there's a distinction between making the free offer of the gospel in either a corporate worship service or even in a, um, you know, old school Baptist revival uh, without an altar call per se, uh, how there's a distinction between the offer of the gospel itself 
and then like a a um, a altar call or a anxious bench type experience. And even uh, if you would, uh, for the sake of our listeners who may be interested, um, after you do discuss that, maybe share how Grace Community Church deals with the the issue. Um, I had the opportunity to, to attend while I was a student at Masters, but I think our listeners would be interested to hear. Yeah, I did a, a breakout seminar at the Shepherds Conference probably almost 20 years ago on answering that very question at length. There's probably a recording of it somewhere online, but in essence, what I said was, if I'm all in favor of invitations, but not altar calls, and I see a significant difference, an invitation is simply the general call of the gospel, uh, urging people to repent and believe. And and I, I think it's important to tell people, look, you can do that at any point at any time. You, you don't have to come forward to do it. Uh, it's fine if, if people come forward, uh, unless they think that the act of coming forward is what saves them. Uh, at Grace Community Church, what we do is tell people, look, we've got a prayer room here with counselors who can show you the gospel. If you're interested in in being saved, you come after the service and talk to someone there, and uh, and they'll step them through the gospel, pray with them, and all that. Um, I, I think there are people who look at that and say, "Well, that looks awfully like a Baptist invitation." Other than you don't ask them to walk the aisle while the service is going on. Yeah, except I, I think the the whole point is to stress the fact that. If you want to come to Christ, you do that by faith, not by walking down an aisle, not by any kind of physical act. Uh, and it's an important distinction to make. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. And nothing is more clearly a work than, than the requirement that you do some physical motion. You walk forward or raise your hand or whatever. Um, and when I when I preach, I always stress to people, look, you can you can call on Christ right there where you sit right now. You don't have to wait even for the end of the service. Um, and I think there are people who are converted that way. I was uh, because my conversion came uh, when I was reading the scriptures alone in my room and greatly convicted. And then a series of things happened uh, during that week that kept confronting me with gospel truth. I don't know exactly when I passed from death unto life, but I know it was during that week. Uh, but I never walked an aisle. I didn't respond in any kind of church service. Uh, and that caused me a little bit of angst for about a year after I was saved. I was asking, constantly asking myself, uh, because every service I ever went to, the preacher talked about, you know, coming forward. And I had never actually gone forward in a service so was I really saved? And so someone pointed out to me that, you know, if you just read what scripture says, you're saved by grace through faith. Do you have faith? Have you trusted Christ? Do you love him? Those are the issues, not whether you, not whether you uh, perform some physical act. Hmm. Amen. Amen, brother. Well, this has been an excellent conversation and, uh, We've been talking about someone that we all probably don't admire that much greatly for this conversation. <laughs> and so I want to give you to an opportunity to talk about someone that I know you appreciate a little bit more and someone that I know you've done a lot of research on, uh, namely Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, the first time I ever heard you speak in person, brother, I don't get many opportunities to go out to the West Coast, but you were uh, at Founders Midwest in St. Louis, Missouri, and you gave an excellent talk comparing Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker, I believe. Right. Uh, 
but that's not necessarily the scope of this conversation. We'll limit it to Spurgeon and Finney to wrap us up. Perhaps it would be helpful uh, to conclude by contrasting how Spurgeon would call sinners to Christ, what his method would be, and how Finney would do. He would call yes. that calling sinners to Christ. So can you compare uh, Spurgeon and Finney? Yes, and, and it is a stark contrast. Before we get away from Finney, let me say, there's an article online that I wrote uh, maybe 20 years ago about Finney. It's called uh, Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. If you, if you just search Finney's name and my name, I think it'll come up. Uh, I remember writing it on a train. I was taking the train from California to Boston. And, uh, and I, something provoked me to think, you know, really, I need to explain to people who I still would encounter, who liked Finney, why he's so dangerous. So I wrote this article. It's been on the web pretty much ever since. And it goes into great detail, quoting from Finney himself to substantiate some of the allegations I've made about him, that he was devious, uh, that he deliberately attacked the doctrinal foundations of the denomination that had ordained him, and that he was wrong biblically, and that a lot of his, a lot of his distinctive ideas uh, were really more rooted in his own sense of justice and human reason than they were in Scripture. If he saw something in Scripture he didn't like, he would explain it away. He was very clever at that. But uh, anyway, so all of that is documented in that article. It's called A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. And, um, and of course, you're right. Spurgeon is much, much more one of my favorite uh, characters from church history. And they were, for a brief time, contemporaries. Spur Spurgeon was younger, of course, than Finney. They actually had a common friend. Uh, he was an eccentric Englishman named Pato Brown, P-O-T-T-O -T -T -O, Brown who uh, had actually hosted Finney on one or maybe more than one of his visits to England. Finney, Finney's ministry took him to England, and he knew Pato Brown, who was enthralled with him. He thought he was great. Uh, and then Spurgeon came along, and Pato Brown liked him as well. Uh, and he, uh, he, he never successfully introduced the two of them. They never met. But uh, their styles could not be more different. There's a biography of Spurgeon that came out 20 years ago or so that mentions Pato Brown and says, it's a shame he couldn't get them together because they probably really would have loved one another. And my answer is, not the Spurgeon I know. I don't think he would have had a high opinion of Finney at all. And he, I know that he knew enough about Finney to reject his methodology and his theology and, and pretty much Spurgeon was the polar opposite of him from a doctrinal perspective. Uh, Finney was Pelagian, which is, if you want to look at it on a spectrum, that's like taking Arminianism to its most ridiculous extreme against Calvinism. And Spurgeon was a Calvinist. So they would have been at opposite ends of any spectrum that you wanted to draw. Um, and Spurgeon won more souls to Christ, I'm certain, than Finney did. Finney admitted at the end of his life that he didn't see a lot of lasting fruit from his evangelistic ministry. Spurgeon had a church full of people, many of them working class people, who he had introduced to the gospel and, and it seemed come to salvation. He never had an altar call. He didn't need to. 
but he always preached the gospel. One of one of Spurgeon's frustrations was, uh, as a young man, he was burdened with guilt from his sin, looking for salvation, and he went from church to church for I think a couple of years before. It's a famous story of how he was converted. He he stumbled into a church in the middle of a snowstorm, where the pastor couldn't be there because of the snowstorm, and so this illiterate, practically illiterate working man got up to preach, and and as Spurgeon describes it, it was a you know, from from an artistic point of view, pretty poor sermon. Uh, and yet, he made the gospel clear enough, and Spurgeon was converted under that almost illiterate man's preaching because the guy brought him face-to-face with the simplicity of the gospel, the reality that you're saved by faith. It's not, uh, it's not a matter of things that you do. Uh, so Spurgeon's conversion experience is starkly different from Finney's conversion experience, and uh, their theology, as you draw out the line, reflects that. Um, and as I said, Spurgeon it was frustrated by the fact that he would go and hear these preachers, and they didn't, until, until this one guy made the gospel clear to him, he said he heard a lot of sermons about sanctification and the demands of God's law and all of that, but no one was telling him how he could be saved. And so he, he uh, he uh, resolved that he would never preach without giving the gospel, and he didn't. You can find gospel truth in every published sermon by Spurgeon, and as a result, people were constantly being converted under his ministry without altar calls, without any kind of public demonstration. He just confronted people with the reality of sin and guilt and showed them the way uh, of salvation, and they responded in droves. Spurgeon could have filled literally any auditorium or stadium in England during the peak of his ministry. In fact, at one point, he preached to a crowd of 20,000 people with no amplification. Um, And um, so I would say as an evangelist, he was far more effective than Finney. So it's ironic to me that American evangelicals are enthralled with the methodology of Finney, uh, which by his own admission didn't bear lasting fruit, uh, but they reject the theology of Spurgeon by and large, not all of them, not, certainly some of us definitely embrace Spurgeon, but I would say that the bulk of big movement American evangelicalism rejects the, the distinctives of Spurgeon's doctrine and embraces Finney's methodology, and that has all been to the detriment of the church. It's why so many churches are full uh, but so few c- true converts exist. It's, uh, you know, another parallel that just occurs to me, one of the biggest churches in America was Willow Creek in the Chicago area. And Bill Hybels ultimately came to the same point as Finney, where at the end of decades of, you know, entertaining people and, and drawing crowds and emotionally manipulating people, Hybels said, we failed when it comes to, uh, you know, the process of actually seeing true disciples. We can gather crowds. We get a lot of appreciative people. But seeing people who really are followers of Christ, if that's the gauge of success, we have failed. Uh, And, you know, I think that speaks for itself. This methodology, which American evangelicals seem so drawn to, has always been ineffectual when it comes to 
the spiritual health of the people who, who sit under that kind of ministry. Amen, Phil. Thank you so much for teasing out all of these important realities pertaining to Charles Finney, emotionalism, revivalism, altar calls, and even Spurgeon here at the end. What a what a fitting place to end our conversation today. Uh, we want to thank you for coming on our show. We we wish you all the best in your continued labors for Christ Church, and uh, we really appreciate everything the Lord's doing through your ministry, brother. Thanks for having me. It was a joy. Absolutely. And to our listeners, we want to thank you for your continued support of the Covenant Podcast. Until next time, we wish you grace and peace. God bless.